Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information about Home Church, visit us at myhomechurch.org. we're on such holy ground this morning. Who are we, Lord, that you would be mindful of us? I thank you for your presence, God, that is so real, so present in the gathering of your people, Lord. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would stir our hearts into wonder this morning into awe as we think about our king our deliverer who has brought about an exodus for us but in doing so would also be our passover lamb i ask holy spirit that you would come you would come and you would anoint i pray now for a special anointing to declare your word i pray that every word would have weight that every heart would be undone. The Lord, that every heart would recognize you are the true king of the nations. You're the true king over their life. And you have made a way for us to come out of captivity. I pray we would stand in awe of you, King Jesus. I pray, God, that what we've experienced would not be a ceiling but only a floor. God, may your presence rise and increase with every word, with every verse. May it increase, God. May you touch, may you change, may you transform. We ask this now, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, worship team. Praise the Lord. Wow. (laughs) What a morning. Kingship of Jesus. That was so beautiful. Um, Before I jump into the word, I just wanted to share two quick reminders, announcements before I forget. Um, Number one is uh, after service today, we have our Connect class. It'll be um, after we break down, so maybe about an hour or so between service and breakdown. So figure about 1.30, we'll be meeting in the office to go through um, who we are as a ministry, how you can get plugged in. So if you would like to do that, if you'd like to take a, if you would, a next step in this body, it's a great place to do that. Um, there's some time in between service, as I said, so if you want to go grab food and then come back at 1.30, we'll have class in the office. And also, I just want to remind you that uh, in a few weeks, the first Tuesday after Easter, we have Alpha. Okay, so it's really important. I want you guys to know that Alpha is an incredible course. I mean, it's, it's foundational, but it's, it's also, it doesn't have to just be foundational. If you're looking to just go deeper with, in fellowship in the word, to ask questions about faith and just how, how, does, how does this work out? Well, how do you see this show up in your life? Alpha is an incredible course to do that. So it's uh, April 11th, I believe, is that first Tuesday. It'll be right at the property owners, right down the road, 31 Neighborhood Road. Uh, I believe it starts at 6.30. Is that right? 6.30. So 6.30, April 11th. All right. 
Dinner's at 6.30, so you don't want to be late for that. Amen. <laughs> um, so as we've been worshiping in a very organic way, but it's just appropriate that today is a really, really significant day. Today is Palm Sunday. Um, it's really hard to put into words the magnitude of not only today, but this week that we're entering in. Um, this is by far, I would say, the most significant week of Christianity. Uh, it's Holy Week. Again, it's, it's Passion Week. It's Palm Sunday. Some call it Passion Sunday. But ultimately, Jesus, we're remembering Jesus entering into his final week on the earth. And it, again, it's difficult to overstate the significance and magnitude of this week. In just seven days, Jesus will uh, he'll come in. He'll cleanse the temple. He's going to confront religious leaders. He's going to institute the Lord's Supper. He's going to have the upper room teachings. And of course, as we know, ultimately, he'll be betrayed, uh, arrested, beaten, scourged, crucified, buried, and then will rise again. <laughs> I thought my week was busy, but that's nothing. <laughs> uh, it's incredible, incredible uh, a thing that we're celebrating. Just the, the Gospels alone, just the sheer volume they give to these seven days tells you how significant this week is. The Gospel of uh, Mark, actually one-third of Go uh, Mark's Gospel is around these seven days. John's Gospel, half of John's Gospel is about these last seven days. All, uh, the other Gospels are about a quarter. Every Gospel from a quarter to up to a half writes just on these last seven days. This is such a holy time of the year that we're coming into, and uh, it's right that we would speak into that. We don't always speak into what's going on in the Christian calendar, but I feel like we do need to do that today. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really excited to jump in. And before I, I get into the passage, I just want to make sure we're entering in on, on, a same, on the same place, in, this, in the same foundation, because sometimes we, we hear these words, Palm Sunday, but we really don't have a basis for it. But I, would, I feel what's on my heart this morning and what we're going to go deeper into is that Palm Sunday is a day, it's a day of great insight, but it's a day of great misunderstanding as well. It's a day of great insight, but it's a day of great misunderstanding. How is it a day of great insight? Because we are recognizing that Jesus is truly king. He really is the king. And so Palm Sunday is recognizing, acknowledging, praising, celebrating that our king the long-awaited king that every promise, every prophecy, every longing, not just of Israel, but creation going back to the fall in Genesis 3 is found, its fulfillment is found in this man, King Jesus. And we're celebrating that he is arriving. He has arrived. And so it's, it's appropriate to see today when we think about Palm Sunday, it was, it was truly a royal procession. Make no mistake about it. Jesus unequivocally made it very clear that he's the king. All the surrounding facts were not random facts that were happening as he entered in. Everything was fulfilling prophecies. He was saying, I'm the one that you've been waiting for. So he rides a donkey, not because that's actually that strange, but kings would ride horses in times of war, but donkeys in times of peace. He's a king, but he's coming in time of peace saying, peace. <laughs> Mark's gospel says that he never rode the, he, no one has ever ridden that donkey before. He said, that's strange, it's not. That was the right of a king. A king's, a king's uh, animal, a horse, donkey, was to never be ridden by anyone else. He was functioning as a king. Many of the Gospels almost portrayed as if Jesus is stealing another man's donkey. You ever read that's kind of strange? He says, go take it. If he says anything, tell him the Lord needs it. That's not strange. That's the right of a king. A king could ask for another man's animal like that. He was functioning within his kingly identity. Why do they lay cloaks? Why did they lay palm branches? All of it was deep in the culture of Israel, in the Maccabean period, victories. This is what they do. It's like rolling out the red carpet. So all of it says King Jesus has come. <laughs> Hallelujah. But it's also a day of great misunderstanding. Because if he is truly a victorious king, if, if this is the triumphal entry, which it is, 
The question is how would he triumph and what would he triumph over? And as many of you know, the Jewish expectation is that he would come in like a strong political figure, that he would come in and he would forcefully overthrow the Roman oppression, but that's not how he came. And so this caused a great deal of confusion. <laughs> if, if Jesus, if this is a royal procession, then the question is, where is the lifting up onto a throne? Where is the crown that he would receive? Where is the royal robes? Because all of this would come with the standard procession of, of essentially the installment of a new king. But this is the irony of it all, is that he was lifted up, but not to a throne, onto a cross. They did give him a crown, but it wasn't adorned with jewels, it was with thorns. And they did give him a robe, but they did it in a place of mockery as they put purple rags on him. But in every way, what they did not realize is as they put those crowns on his head, as they, as they put the robe and mocked him, as they lifted him up on a cross, he was releasing humanity from the grip of Satan, death, and the kingdom of darkness. Even his very own perpetrators, he was releasing them. So good. So he didn't come the way that we thought, but he came in every way that we needed him. <laughs> the glory and the tension of this day, this great day of inside and misunderstanding. But we celebrate King Jesus. You know it was Passover when Jesus came in? So the population of Jerusalem would swell five to six times its normal. And what were they there? What were they doing? They were all there to celebrate and remember how years ago God brought deliverance by spilling the blood of a lamb. And here comes Jesus riding in saying, a greater exodus is upon you. I am your king, but I will deliver you by spilling my own blood, for I am the Lamb of God. This is how we're free. <laughs> I'm so excited for today. All right, you guys ready for this? I tell you the glory. I, God's got me. Someone gave a word to me that I'm going to eat the word more than I ever have before. And I've just taken that by faith and just put myself before it. And I feel such a stirring to go deep in the word today to see the glory of what God has done for us. So let's go to Isaiah 52. And while you're turning there, I'm coming here because th this is going to be a, a, there's a prophecy here that's really in large part being fulfilled at the first coming of Christ, particularly coming to Jerusalem. Uh, no doubt that there's a second part where Jesus will come into Zion again, but let's be clear about it. He brought salvation when he rode in that day. Uh, many people call Isaiah the fifth gospel, <laughs> and I believe that's appropriate. So this is an appropriate book to go to. So I'm in Isaiah, again, 52, if you guys haven't turned there yet. I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, turn, because I'm really going to unpack and go through a, a lot of different things here. If you have your phone, you can look it up, Isaiah 52. I'll go through it on, uh, through the ESV, if you have a phone and you want to look at that. All right, Isaiah 52. So I want to look at this tension of Jesus is truly king. He fulfills this prophecy. But again, the way that he comes is not how those, uh, the people of God expected. It was a day of great misunderstanding. And Isaiah's, what we're about to read is, is one of the greatest, I think, depictions of what happened at Palm Sunday, leading into then Isaiah 53, which is the suffering servant of how he would ultimately lose his life. Now, I'm asking you guys to just stay with me for a moment because this, I just want to teach this so we understand what we're stepping into. Isaiah 52 falls in a larger context of one of the most glorious portions of Scripture, which is Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 55, 15 chapters known as the Servant Songs. When the, when the New Testament writers, these men in, in Acts, say Jesus had to suffer, the Messiah had to suffer according to the Scriptures, they're not just referencing some one-off Scripture. They're, they're referencing back to these deep, long threads that are happening in the Old Testament that point to Jesus. 
Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 55 is one of those portions that when they say Christ had to suffer according to the scriptures, this is a portion that they're constantly referring back to. So this is known as the servant songs, and we're coming into, towards the end of it. But here's basically the flow of this. Is Israel was called to be the servant of the Lord. Now what that means is not that they were just called to do things for God. Yes, that, that comes with it. But it was actually this divine title of which they were called to be a divine instrument to be a witness and a light to the nations. Israel was called to be a light so that when other nations saw Israel, it would ultimately point to God. The issue is that Israel failed miserably in this. And they began to worship the same gods and idols of the other nations. And rather than being a light to the nations, they became enslaved by those very nations. Which is what you're going to find now. They're in Babylonian captivity. But here's the beauty is that through the servant songs, what God begins to do is say, even though Israel has failed as the servant of the Lord, I will raise one up from within Israel who will be the true servant, the true Israel. And this one will be a righteous servant. And you begin to get this image of this kingly-like figure who's coming to bring comfort and salvation to his people. And where Israel has failed, this one will not. He will not only destroy Israel's enemies, but he will restore Israel and be a light to the Gentiles, to the nations. Who is that? <laughs> That's King Jesus. We don't need to wait in the story. So here, here's where we're picking it up. They're in Babylonian captivity. You've got all this going, Israel's failed, but there's this one prophesying that's coming, and Isaiah is really starting to hone in on the glory that's coming when this kingly-like figure arrives. Now, again, they're, they're in this captivity, so Jerusalem at this point is truly devastated. Like, the, the temple's been ransacked. The city's lying in ruins. It's a waste place, and they feel like all hope is lost. This is so important because that's the backdrop, and now this king is going to be coming to them. But... The captivity, the, the, the men like Daniel being taken to Babylon, the city being destroyed, as horrific as all that was, what Ezekiel says was the most devastating part of the whole Babylonian captivity was the fact that Yahweh left the temple. God's presence left. And so you have to see this. What makes Palm Sunday so mind-blowing is that this is the Lord's homecoming. He's coming back to Jerusalem. He's coming back to Zion. What does Jesus do when he enters Jerusalem on the final week? Where does he go right away? To the temple. That's not haphazardly. He's saying, it's, I'm, I'm back. God has come back to restore his presence, but he's actually taken it to another level because the temple is no longer a physical place. He was the living tab a tabernacle and makes us that as well. But this was the significance of Yahweh coming back, all of these prophecies. So the heart of that is Isaiah 52, verse 7 to 12. But I'm going to go back just a few verses, and I, I got to restrain myself here. <laughs> I do. My, I was talking to my wife, and she's like, you better chill out. You're going to give a whole teaching on the book of Isaiah. But it's just too good, and I want you, but here's why. Because Isaiah, he writes in a reverse order. In other words, in the beginning of chapter 52, he's declaring as if redemption has already happened, and salvation has come, and all of the glories with that. But he does this intentionally so that the readers, as they're reading, they're asking this question, but how? How can this be? And he keeps building it and building it until you get to where we're going to go today, which is the, the king comes into Zion, and they're still saying, but how does that redeem us? And then you get to 53, where you'll see the one who is bruised, crushed, and pierced. That's the whole story. But I want us to enter into the suspense of what Isaiah was doing. Amen? All right. So here we are, Isaiah 52. Here's what happens when this righteous king comes, and he has come. This, this is why we're celebrating today. Isaiah 52, verse 1 says, 
Awake, awake. <laughs> here's a people that God's coming to broken, devastated. And here's a voice calling out saying, awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Now these are speaking as finished works. Again, we're going to see how could this be possible. But here's the voice. you got Jerusalem completely devastated. And God comes to them through the prophet Isaiah and says, Now is the time to awake. We are living in an arise hour because salvation has come. The, the fact that he's saying awake means that Israel, because of their, they're under the weight of their own rebellion. This isn't like a feeling. This is actuality. They're actually under the weight of their own rebellion. And the picture is that they're lying prostrate almost, depleted, devastated, demoralized. They're immobile. They can't move. But God comes to them and begins to say, awake, awake. Now is an hour to get up. Now is the hour to arise. Some have been under the despondency of their own rebellion. It's right that you felt that, but here's the thing is, someone has come to say, arise. The hour is upon us. Salvation is here. This theme of awakening goes back, okay, we got to go back into 51 for a second. Just see this. It's too good. Look at uh, Isaiah 51 verse 17. This is where this voice started coming saying, arise, arise. Isaiah 51, 17 says, wake yourself, wake yourself. There it is again. Stand up, O Jerusalem. Now listen carefully. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. So here's what's happening is that Israel was under the weight again of their own sin, and they were drinking the cup, the wrath of God, and they could not handle it. It was too much for them to bear. Now this was an actual truth. But what this is saying is God's saying, awake, awake. The cup that you've been drinking is being removed from you. Now, but what they're going to be asking is, how in the world could the cup that we've been drinking be removed from us? For someone will come and drink it for you. <laughs> this is the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus drinks the cup for us. Now, they don't fully understand this yet, but all they know is they're weighed down. The picture here is that they're still laboring under condemnation, and God is saying, arise, forgiveness has come. Why are you laboring under condemnation still? I've made a way for you to come out. Awake, awake, arise. Oh, I've seen in my own heart so often crippled under condemnation, forgetting that an hour has come where forgiveness has come. But it wasn't cheap. Someone drank the cup for me. <laughs> That's where he's going. Israel was paralyzed under God's judgment, but what this means is the curse is being reversed. Hallelujah. In fact, if you keep reading it, that's what he's going to say. The cup is being removed, and he says, I'm putting it in the hand of your tormentors. This is, this is the gospel, guys. This is what Jesus did at the cross, where literally what was on us, not only did he remove it, but he put it on the kingdom of darkness. <laughs> made a way for us to come out. So look back at chapter 52. Again, he says, awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments. Not only has the cup been removed when this king comes, but then he says to a people that were so broken and felt worthless and depleted, he says, put on beautiful garments. And I was doing some study on this. Do you know there's only one place, this is so good, where beautiful garments are described? And it's Exodus 28, describing the garments of the high priest. 
What is he saying? Put on your priestly garments. Now check this out. Look at verse 2. It says, shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. What's seated mean? Royalty. What is he saying you are? He says, step into your place as a royal priesthood. This is what God has always desired going back to Exodus. He's saying a new Exodus is here. But when he called them out before, they couldn't step into the full purpose of God's heart to be a royal priesthood. But here he is. Guys, he hasn't just liberated us. He's imparted beauty to us. And the most amazing thing is that God did this while Israel was laid out under their own sin. In other words, they're being awakened to a voice that's saying, garments have been laid out. <laughs> Put on your garments. God is saying, there's a, God is blessing his people and they haven't done anything to contribute to it. They're just laid out in their own sin and God's saying, arise, I've worked on your behalf and done something for you. They can only take it by faith. <laughs> Guys, this is the gospel. While we're yet still dead in sin, Christ was working on our behalf. The only thing I knew is I heard a voice one day say, arise, Andrew, put on your new garments, put on Christ and step into this. And I took it by faith. Some are being called out this morning. You may be believed, but awake, awake, step into it. He says, shake off the dust. You see that shake off the dust? That's humiliation. That's, he's breaking the guilt of sin. Come out of the guilt of sin, but then he says, and loose the bonds from your neck. That's the power of sin. Jesus has dealt with the guilt of sin and the power of sin. Because it's one thing to know that you've been forgiven and guilt's removed, but then you're still bound. But now he's saying not only has guilt been removed, but so has the power of sin that you can now walk after me in purity and holiness. In fact, look at the end of verse 1. It says, For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. That's an imagery of he's imparting holiness to them now. So he, he's restoring dignity, beauty, holiness. Here they are, dead under their own sin, can't move. And he's saying, arise, put on your beautiful garments, and be seated as a royal priesthood. The putting on the garments, guys, is not an exercise to just pretend. He, he's not saying, just put on something outside and just pretend that you're this. He's actually, the statement is a manifestation of character. He's saying, be who you were made to be. Step into it. You're not just going around pretending, just claiming identity, but like just main bot. No, he's like, you are a royal priesthood. Sin stole it. I'm restoring it back to you. So walk in it. This is who you really are now. Restoring dignity, life back to his people. Guys, this is what Jesus has done. This is what we're celebrating when we say our king has come. Hallelujah. So then, I'll leave it there. Verse 3 and 6. Now Isaiah is beginning to take us into, but how? That's the question, how? And Isaiah is going to tell us now, we don't fully get it just yet, but an act is coming. God is going to act in a way that will secure the glories that I just said in verse 1 and 2. So let's look at verse 3. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. Now if you keep reading this passage in verse 3 to 6, there's an emphasis on you were sold for nothing. You were sold for nothing. The idea is that they were seen as worthless to their own enemies. But God is saying, this is how I see you now. I don't see you as worthless. <laughs> I see you as a royal priesthood. <laughs> I see you as a beautiful bride. This is part of, part of the reason why we get, we're, we're laid out, if you will, where we can't move and step into what God's called, is we feel so much shame and just worthless and all these things. God's dealing with that by saying, this is how I see you. But he says, you were sold for nothing and you will be redeemed without money. 
This would have been so striking to the Israelites to hear this because redemption was a common practice. A lot of times the gospel writers, we view like terms like redemption as it's a, uh, it's a gospel truth, and it is, but it didn't originate with the gospel. These truths occurred before, and the New Testament writers take these to give you understanding as to how to understand the gospel. But the practice of redemption was in the culture. You would pay people or armies, whatever it was, to bring back slaves or whatever it may be. But you have to pay money. So when God says, I'm going to redeem you without money, the Israelites would have been saying, what? How can you redeem something without money? But what does Peter say in 1 Peter? Do you not know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, but you were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, the spotless lamb? Now, they still don't understand this yet, but that's Isaiah 53. <laughs> this is where he's going. Right now they're asking, wait, you're removing the cup of wrath? Someone else is going to take it. You're going to make us a royal priesthood, and you're going to deem us without money. How? <laughs> well, let's keep reading. <laughs> let's actually skip to, for time's sake, I'll skip to verse 6 at the end. Uh, Isaiah makes some imagery about coming out of Egypt and Assyria. He's saying a new exodus, new deliverance. But it's different in this way. Look at 52.6. He says, Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, meaning in this new exodus, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak, here I am. Or some translations say, uh, behold me. <laughs> so what he's saying is just like in Exodus, just like in, in Egypt and Assyria when I delivered you, I'm going to redeem you without money. I'm going to deliver you again. But it's going to be different than past Exodus. And here's why. Because in the past, I worked through a man like Moses. This time, you are going to know that it's I who speak. In other words, he's saying, God's saying, I'm going to come myself. Behold me. This will be radically different. He's saying that with this new exodus, there will be a revelation of the Lord in word and person in a way we've never seen. The one who shows up, he says, will be, the, will be me. <laughs> this is Jesus. <laughs> so now we come into the heart of this morning. It's not that we're spending that much time, but this is where we see these threads of Palm Sunday. That's all the glorious things that are going to come when this king arrives. And verses 7 to 12 is where the scene shifts, and now we have this king approaching Zion. Are you guys with me? Amen? So here's, I want you to just hear this, and then we'll just read through these. This is, this is the imagery that's being played on. In, in this culture, in ancient Near Eastern culture, the cities were walled, and when there were battles, soldiers would go out to battle, and what you would have is watchmen on the wall, and the watchmen would be looking intently, waiting for a runner or a messenger to come back to give an update, to give the news, whether bad or good, as to what was happening on the battlefield. So this is the picture is that you have Jerusalem, this walled city with watchmen on the wall, and they're trying to see what is the update on the battlefield, what will happen. And as the watchmen are looking out, they begin to see a messenger approaching. <laughs> There's one that's going to be coming. And the watchmen were so trained in looking for these messengers that they could actually tell the quality or the type of news that was being brought based on how the runner was approaching. Oftentimes it says that when they approached in groups that meant bad news because they were fugitives fleeing from the battlefield with their heads hanging low and their feet just trotting along. But oh, if you saw one whose feet began to be kicking over the mountains with the dust kicking up, they would say, how beautiful are the feet of him who bring good news. <laughs> so here is Israel, completely devastated, broken. The watchmen are looking out, and all of a sudden they see one approaching. And look at verse 7. This is what Isaiah has in mind. 
He says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, <laughs> who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. <laughs> so Israel is completely decimated. They're looking out, a messenger's approaching, and as this messenger gets within earshot of the watchman on the wall, here's what they're hearing. Good news, peace, happiness, your God reigns. They're proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Peace, the war is over, there's no more threat. Salvation has come, that means salvation means the oppressor. They would use this in actual battle terms. Salvation means the oppressor's power has been broken. Your enemy has been defeated. There's one who's coming to this people. Guys, when we go out to evangelize, when we go out to witness, this is what we're doing. We're going into devastated cities, devastated lives, devastated homes, and we're saying, good news, peace, salvation, your God reigns. This is why Paul said in Romans 10, for us, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. We now follow in the footsteps of our master. So here's this messenger coming. Look at verse 8. He's coming, he's approaching Zion, Jerusalem. But now they recognize this is not any ordinary messenger. This is God himself that showed up. And verse 8 says, The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. <laughs> now we know Jesus is returning once and for all and he's coming to Zion. I get that. But guys, this is the picture when Jesus came into Zion in Jerusalem. This is the idea. They saw eye to eye with clarity their king, Yahweh himself, coming into their midst. And the watchmen on the wall, as they're seeing their king and as they're hearing what he's saying, they're beginning to be filled with such joy that there is this unified song that arises. And everyone listening is hearing. And then verse 9 says this, Break forth into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Now the song that began with a few of the watchmen has spread to the entire city. The whole city has become a choir worshiping their king that has arrived. What happened when Jesus came riding in on a donkey? Matthew 21 says the whole city was stirred. Sometimes we don't grasp probably the, how exuberant his arrival was and what, what was being met with, what his, they were meeting his arrival with. You're talking praise. There was cloaks. There was palm branches. The kids were singing out Hosanna. That's why the Pharisees had to say, tell them to be quiet. They knew. They knew what this meant. God was coming to Zion. Everything God had declared is happening right before our eyes. We see him face to face. We're living in this reality. Hallelujah. <laughs> he comes into the waste places of Jerusalem. Come on, these are the most broken places. That means the, the ones that began to sing for joy, it was the suffering broken remnant that was left in Jerusalem. Now they're singing for joy for their king has come. This is what we do when we go out and evangelize. <laughs> This is what we do when we live our life day to day. We're, we're going into these places, declaring your king has come. And the most broken waste places can turn into places of joy. The gospel, the gospel didn't come just to the affluent. God's for the affluent. But what makes the gospel so powerful, it goes to the waste places. It goes to the hearts and the families and feel like there's no more hope. And his gospel is so powerful, it comes in and it just, man, it just breaks things. And it just restores and renews everything being restored here. And then verse 10, it says, The Lord has bared his holy arm 
before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall they see the salvation of God. This, this idea of the Lord has bared his holy arm, what that actually means is uncovered. The imagery is that God himself is rolling up his sleeve and saying, I'm going to act in my own person and power to do this. I am going to break, I'm going to break the chains of Babylon, which for us is sin and death. I'm going to break it myself. I'm going to restore Israel, and I'm going to bring the nations into it. And I will do it by my own might. Hallelujah. This is what we're celebrating when our king comes on Palm Sunday. It's almost like we need to go back and just sit on this for a while. It's too good. And he says, I'm going to do it before the eyes of all the nations, which means that that doesn't just mean visible. It means experienced. To see it in the scriptures often means experienced. God's desire is salvation would be experienced by the nations now. Every heart this morning, every person in this tent, his desire is for you to feel what's being promised and prophesied in these scriptures. Jesus has come for you. And then these last two verses, you guys following with me? He then says this, depart, depart, go out from there and touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Again, there's so much here. I'll summarize it this way. This is, again, emphasizing this Exodus language of coming out. And interesting, it says, don't take anything unclean. In Exodus, they were actually told to take things here. It's saying, don't take anything. And just bear the vessels of the Lord, which was a priestly duty. This means there's a greater Exodus. And one of the ways it's greater is that when you come out, every person that comes out is a priest. You're coming out as that already. <laughs> you're, not, you're, not coming, you're not trying to become that. You actually come out bearing the holy vessels of the Lord. It's imagery of you come out as a royal priesthood. And then you are to live that way. What he's saying then, live, live pure, live holy in light of your new identity. <laughs> because you are this, live this way now. And then finally, verse 12. He says, for you shall not go out in haste. This is so good. And you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. <laughs> now, there's something really beautiful in this. Let me share one first, one thing first, though, is that typically when you get delivered from an enemy, you want to go. <laughs> this is saying don't panic. Now, why would you want to go so quickly? Because of the fear of being recaptured. But here it says when you come out, you don't need to have panic flight because recapturing is not a possibility because God, God will be your rear. For who the sun sets free is free indeed. So walk in your freedom. Don't look back. Go in it. God has your back. He's saying, I'll go before you. I'll be behind you. You don't need to be worried about, oh my goodness, am I going to make it? He says, go. There's a greater exodus here because there's a greater lamb. Thank you, Lord. Arise, arise and walk in all that God has made you to be. The scriptures say we have, we have one life, one life to live. One life to live and every man, will, every woman will stand before the Lord. And I want to stand with that. There's a wisdom that can touch our lives to know that we want to make everything count. God, we want every part of my life, not just when we're in these gatherings, every part because he cares about everything. I want to give all of my life to you, Lord. But here's the second thing. And this is where we'll, we'll kind of finish this out. Is that when, when, when the prophet Isaiah says, go in haste, uh, don't, go, don't go in haste, don't go in flight. 
we're not as rooted, obviously, as the Jews were in these texts. But when they heard certain things, immediately it brings them to remembrance to other texts. And 100%, when they heard this, what they would have thought of right away is the Exodus. But interestingly, God does something different. God actually says, in the Exodus, it's the last night. The last night of deliverance from Egypt. And what does God say? God actually says, do the opposite. Get ready to move quickly. Tuck your cloak in your belt. Put your sandals on. Put your staff in hand. For when I come to deliver, I want you to move right away. Now, even though what's being said here is opposite and there's reasons, as I just said, the point is they would go right back to the last night of Exodus when they heard this. And they would be thinking, wait a minute. If God is doing another Exodus like before, and God is about to deliver us in an even greater way, that last night something had to happen. There had to be a lamb. And they would be thinking to themselves right now, if you're going to deliver us again, just like you did that last night, where is the Passover lamb? And look at the next verse, 13. This is the father speaking of Jesus. He says, behold my servant. And if you read the rest of this chapter, in all of chapter 53, all of it is now, behold my servant, who will be so disfigured you wouldn't even be able to recognize him anymore. Where's the Passover lamb? Behold my servant. How, how will the cup of wrath be removed from my life, Lord? Behold my servant. Behold my servant who will be bruised, who will be crushed, who will be pierced, who will be chastised for you, and ultimately will be cut off from the land of the living. How will we become a royal priesthood? The father says, behold my servant. This is how it's done. <laughs> and now as we step back from this perspective, seeing Jesus, we see the glory and the... The, the, the tensions and all that comes with this day. We recognize King Jesus, but we recognize that also he gave his life up for us. It's the only way. That's why Isaiah 53 begins, and this is so cool because Johnny said, I feel like the Lord's saying, who will believe what, what uh, the Lord is saying? Look at Isaiah 53, 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Isaiah, what Isaiah is saying, who could ever imagine that the arm of the Lord that would be laid bare would now become the suffering servant? Who would believe that our deliverer, our new Moses, would then also become our Passover lamb. Who could ever believe this? But so it is. Behold my servant, the only holy one, the only righteous one, who will give up his life in order to restore Israel and redeem us. <laughs> this is what we celebrate at Palm Sunday. Hallelujah. I feel like we need to take communion together. <laughs> I feel so stirred over the last few weeks over taking communion. And I really feel that we need to do it again. Uh, I'll ask Mark if you want to just throw something on, if the ushers can just get it ready. But I, I want to put this before you. Just hear this. Because there's going to be something I think so powerful in this. I love, I love altar calls and I love having people respond to salvation in that sense. But what's interesting is that if you see the early church, oh yeah, go ahead, you can pass it up. In the early church, oftentimes, the way that they had an altar call was they called them to the table. They called them to the table and they said, whatever you need is found in the body and the blood of Christ. So I want to invite you this morning that if, if you don't know the Lord, take this meal in faith and say, I believe Jesus, the only way to new life is through your body and through your blood. I love praying. I love people confessing with, in that sense, but you're confessing and you say, I believe this is the only way. We'll pray for you after, but you can partake in this and say, Lord, I'm coming to your table. We're so happy you could join us on the Home Church Podcast. We pray this week's message encourages you to behold the Lord Jesus and bring his kingdom wherever you go.
you can visit us online at myhomechurch.org, subscribe to our YouTube channel, or follow us on social media. If you would like to give to this ministry, text the amount to 84321. Bless you.